Welcome to the Authors Podcast, where we interview authors across the world. Hey, it's Simon. Welcome back. Today we have Dr. Nika Kabiri, a decision science teacher and author who most recently wrote Money Off the Table, Decision Science and the Secret to Smarter Investing, in addition to being a consultant for yournextdecision.com. Dr. Kabiri, it's great to have you with us today. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Kick us off. Tell us a little bit about yourself in your own words and share something that most people wouldn't know about you. Yeah, so I do decision science, which um, essentially involves helping businesses and people make uh, better decisions, whatever that means to them. Um, And I do that through like uh, my own consultancy. And I also have my website, yournextdecision.com, where I answer um, questions with my advice column and write weekly letters. So that's that's how I spend my time. Um, I think something most people don't know about me, although the more podcasts I do, the more and more people are starting to know this about me, is um, just that the fact that what got me motivated to make a career out of better decision-making really stemmed from my own struggles early on in life with, um, um, with depression, anxiety, um, and, you know, suicidal, uh, thoughts and, and just being in a very dark place. And, um, it's kind of a hard thing to talk about. It's, it's a little scary to share, but, um, but the more I share it, the easier it gets. And, um, and I guess as of now, I don't know how many people know that about me. Well, thank you for being so open about that. Uh, Clearly, it's a spot where many people don't want to be in, and uh, it's phenomenal that you were able to take that difficult scenario and uh, turn it into a way to help others and and potentially help yourself. Um, So with that in mind, maybe you can talk a little bit about how you got your start professionally and kind of walk us through your journey up until what you're doing now. Yeah, yeah. So... um... I, you know, after going to law school and hating it, I went back to graduate school to study sociology. And it was there that I was fortunate enough to work with um, some really um, heavy hitters in the the field of rational choice theory. Um, So I spent a a good chunk of my graduate career studying um, how like economic, mostly economic models of decision-making apply to sociological phenomenon. Um, and, you know, studying game theory and doing some agent-based modeling and doing a lot of that sort of thing. And, um, and then later on in, in graduate school, as behavioral economics was mainstreaming, I got to learn a little bit of that and apply that to what I was doing as well. So once I graduated, it was kind of a natural fit for me to go into the world of business and understand consumer decision-making and consumer behavior. Um, and that, so that's what I've been doing for the last 12 years, consulting with businesses and doing mostly primary research or leading um, a teams of researchers to do projects for um, companies like, you know, as big as PepsiCo and General Mills and Amazon and Microsoft, all the way down to um, startups and, you know, even companies that are not even in that startup phase yet, they're just kind of at their inception. Um, and so that's, that's how I got to where I am now. Um, and as far as helping 
individuals, because I kind of have recently made a shift from consulting businesses to consulting individuals, that really, like I said, stemmed from the fact that um, early on in life, I struggled a lot with some really heavy, dark stuff. And the only thing that really pulled me out of it, that got me to a place where I'm now, which is very content and very, I feel successful is learning how to make better decisions for myself. And I really, truly do believe that um, if you can make good decisions, if you know how to do that, um, it's a really good compliment to therapy or um, any other sort of source of um, self-improvement. It really does get you to a better place and really help you live a better life. So when you say that the ideas of uh, tapping into your higher self, tapping into um, your potential, reminding yourself of your position in life comes to mind. But um, of course, maybe you can share your approach methodology and how you go about helping others in that realm. Yeah. um, And, you know, there are a lot of similarities between helping businesses and and people. Um, I think a lot of times we get mired in the past or why we ended up where we are. Um, And a better way to think about it is where do you want to be? So, you know, when I work with clients, I always start with the at the end, like what's your end game? Where do you want to go? Where do you want to end up? And, um, and, you know, that's a fluid target. It's, it's a, it's a moving target often because we change. We're not, we're not the same people from year to year. Businesses aren't the same businesses from year to year. And so your end games kind of have to shift a little bit, but you always need some direction. And then I basically guide people through, um, kind of, um, two prongs, I guess, to the approach. One is advising them on what they should do, which is part of it is getting in touch with your higher self. But if in terms of being more um, rational, I suppose, or being more in control, I I suppose, of your decision-making as opposed to letting irrationality bias or emotion kind of take over, it's kind of learning how to harness that power and do what's right. And then on the other hand, understanding why you can't, why we're so kind of set up as human beings to um, make mistakes because our brains are so efficient or because we're so influenced by our social environments. So that's kind of that to that to the prescriptive and the descriptive kind of parts of, of the work that I do. Um, and yeah, just by little, little steps that ladder up to the end game. Um, usually it, it, it works and it worked for me. I know I can tell you that. And one thing you mentioned that's interesting is emotion. And in some ways, it can be a double-edged sword, right? There's the benefits of using your gut to make decisions, but the potential drawbacks or downsides of getting too, let's call it emotional, for the lack of a better word, and um, consumed by recurrent negative thoughts that get in the way of you making forward progress. So maybe you can talk a little bit about how you've helped some of your clients more recently to overcome that emotional component and find the right balance of how to use it in a way that's empowering rather than disempowering? Yes, this is a really um, a great question and a really tough thing to, to um, exercise or execute in everyday life. Um, I, I know there are quite a few people out there who always trust their gut and they'll, they'll tell me, I always trust my feelings. Um, and I don't know if that's really the smartest way to go because our feelings can bias us. Um, and for instance, we might refuse to um, process or accept information 
that is should be vital to our decisions, but that don't feel good to hear. And so we, we let our emotions sort of reject information that we really need to know. And that's just one example in which our emotions aren't great. And our gut is often just another word for impulse. A lot of times it's just that kind of like automatic behavior. Um, we don't, it's really hard to tell from, from one decision to the next, whether your gut is really kind of a, an ex, a sense of your, you know, all of your experiences combined to on some subconscious level driving you in the right direction or if it's impulsive. Um, but on the other hand, it's really not efficient <laughs> to, to be rational all the time. We just don't have the time and the energy. Our rationality is bounded. Um, we can't really process information as like a computer can. We can't you know, hold information or memories in our brains. Um, we can only do it to a certain extent. It's all bounded. So trying to be rational all the time can be exhausting and it could really um, not even be necessary. So when I work with my clients on this issue, it's, it's mostly about trying to, and I using certain rules of thumb to identify um, like under what conditions is it worth going with your gut or your feelings and under what conditions is it necessary to be rational? It's not the case. You got to do one or the other. Um, but, you know, for instance, if you are limited in time in making your decision, like you have to make a snap decision right away, of course, you can't really be rational, you can't have time to collect information. So some of the, the one of the first questions I ask when I'm facing a decision or when my clients are facing a decision is, well, how much time do you really have to make this decision? Do you have to do it right away? If not, let's slow down and be rational. And if you don't have a lot of time, then why are you taking so much time being rational? Um, and, you know, also important are stakes. How high are the stakes? Is it worth using, you know, gut or feeling, or do you really want to second guess yourself a little bit and be careful? Um, how reversible is the decision? Can you take it back once you make it? Some decisions lock us in or make it really hard to get out of, you know, the outcomes that we experience. Um, so, you know, if it's a reversible decision, then yeah, sure. Why, why spend a lot of time worrying about the outcome? You can just switch it up when you don't like it, but if it's not reversible, you might want to be rational. So there, you know, I just work with these different rules to help people um, really kind of make it's, it's like the decisions you make before the decisions is what I call them. And that's kind of a decision you make before the decision, which is, you know, how rational should I be? How much feeling should I bring into this? To paint a better picture of the kind of clients you work with, maybe you can give a high level description of what they tend to be, what kind of roles they exercise in business. Yeah, so um, mostly my sweet spot these days has been working with companies um, that are, um, I don't know, it's not, not really, although I have recently worked, done some projects for companies like Amazon or Indeed um, or Deloitte, but um, I've also, my sweet spot is companies with around, I don't know, 500 employees, um, usually tech startups that are not startups anymore, but that are maturing and are needing help to kind of reach that next level to kind of mature and grow up and, and you know, not be a, a teenage company anymore. Um, and I usually work with either C-level or senior managers, VPs in those companies um, in usually um, either to help them understand like how to drive product strategy, how to drive marketing and branding strategy, 
Um, and also, you know, how to um, recognize the way in which behavioral science and social science influence or, or can inform their understanding of consumer behavior. So ultimately it's, you know, how does a CMO, what insights about the way that consumers make decisions must a CMO know in order to drive their strategy across their team? Um, or how much, what about, you know, behavioral science or nudges must, um, does the CPO of some tech company need to know in order to drive um, the right, you know, product roadmap? So that's basically the business types of projects that I do. And that might segue nicely into your book, which we talked about or mentioned earlier. What can you say has or was the impetus for writing the book? What were the series of events or realizations you had? Yeah, um, so my, um, it, it started with a series of conversations I had with my co-author who, um, his name is Tony Sablon. He's a good friend of mine. I've known him, I've known him for almost more than 15 years. Um, and he is a, a wealth advisor out of the um, Seattle area. And we used to train at the same MMA gym together, like 15 years ago. Um, that's when we started training together. Um, he's now a pretty seasoned and accomplished MMA coach. He's training partner to Demetrius Johnson. So in that 15 years, we've kind of, we've grown a lot together. Um, and it was about four years ago that we started having conversations about his clients. He would have people come to him potential clients asking for an investment plan or asking, you know, for his, about his services and what he offers in terms of wealth advising. And, and time and again, he would tell me, I would, you know, he would give them these, um, these strategies, these financial strategies. He would go through a whole process with them of identifying their end games and all this, you know, all the, the necessary steps. And he would, he was baffled that so many of them, not all of them, but so many of them rejected his very rational strategic um, advice and would ab abandon it for um, something a little bit more sexy like crypto or um, something a little bit um, that, that feels more comfortable to them, like buying a lot of real estate and investing nothing in stocks and not diversifying. And, and he couldn't quite understand it. Like what is driving this decision-making? And, and that's when it just sort of hit us like, wait, you do wealth advising, people are making bad decisions, I do decision science, we should write a book. And that's where it all kind of came about. And, and then we just had a series of conversations that just, I learned a lot about investing and his approach to strategy, and also just a lot about, about how decision science is so informative in helping people make the right investment decisions. Sure. And in comparison to some of the very popular general teachings on value investing, I'm curious what things you had learned along the process when it comes to investing and, and behavioral sciences and where there are um, interchanges that make a lot of sense and, and help people to make better decisions on that front. Yeah. Um, I think one thing that was apparent to me um, was just how much of um, um, investing decisions are driven by what I like to call emotional management, that people make choices that feel good rather than choices that are objectively going to help them um, become, you know, 
obtain as mo- as much wealth or, or, or income as possible for retirement or for their progeny or whatever. Um, but for instance, one, one way in which this kind of emotional management plays out in investing is um, this fear of missing out. And, you know, that happens in day trading, that it's really just this kind of an emotional impulsive response to stimuli um, and that you, you know, you're making decisions to manage that emotion. Um, another way it plays out is for some people, and in the book, we have like these uh, personality types or these archetypes. Um, and, you know, there's the, the person that says, you know, enough is good enough. Like I put everything in my 401k. I don't really need to think about it anymore because investing feels icky. I don't understand it. I don't want to worry about it. There's all this negative emotion associated with it. And so there's avoidance um, and people don't think about, you know, all these other asset, um, these vehicles and asset tools and all these other ways to earn um, income that that are so easy to tap into because they don't like the feeling of thinking about it. So it's almost like a, a, a practice or an exercise in overriding, not necessarily ignoring your emotions, but overriding them and allowing your brain to kind of step in and be the adult in the room and say, okay, I know this feels terrible. I know you don't want cookies for dinner, but we're going to have, I mean, you want cookies for dinner, but we're going to have spinach, right? I know you don't want to do it this way, but because it feels wrong to invest in the way that we're advising you to, but you know, what's really going to get you to your end game. Um, And I, I really, I don't think I personally realized just how much emotion or avoidance or trying to manage emotion had to do with investing. Totally. And when you think about some of the core takeaways, or let me rephrase that, some of the feedback that was interesting to you that you received from your readership, what comes to mind? Uh, well, what was really interesting, I mean, when we, we wrote this book, of course, we used the, the quote unquote data we used was really just um, all the clients that Tony had been meeting and, and, and knowing, and we kind of typed those, pro, you know, profiled those. But what was interesting is that readers would say, oh my gosh, I totally fit into one of these categories. Like, you know, I'm the do nothing investor or, um, you know, I'm the listen to experts. I just listen to experts and do whatever they say blindly. So, um, you know, that the fact that there are these kind of personality types um, and that they seem to be validated by the feedback is really great. Um, but also just the, the idea that, that people can control their decisions. I think that was a really profound, um, I don't know, benefit from this book that, the, that the really the more you understand not about investing like learning about investing is one thing but learning about how your brain processes and then makes decisions about investing that was just um apparently a game changer for a lot of people who read the book um that they were getting the wrong information right they were getting all the information they needed about stocks and bonds and real estate and crypto and all that stuff but they weren't learning enough about biases that were influencing their choices or, um, you know, bandwagon effects um, that were influencing their choices. So that was also a very huge benefit that people expressed. When it comes to ideas that excite you these days, whether it's in conducting more primary research or, or writing, what comes to mind? Um, 
You know, it's, it's, I'm hesitating to answer because exciting is kind of an interesting word to describe. Let's describe it because on the one hand, it's exciting. On the other hand, it's kind of, um, I don't know what the word is. It's a little bit disheartening because what I'm really, what really interests me these days are, is why people believe in misinformation, why people make the decisions that they do that seem to be against their best interests, either politically or socially. Um, You know, and oftentimes those decisions are fueled by misinformation. Why we have, why our, our society is so polarized um, why there are so many conspiracy theories out there that have a kind of a, a really powerful hold on so many people. Um, a lot of these things are really sad to think about to me, but they're also kind of exciting in a way, in the way, in the sense that they are really interesting problems to solve. And so that's sort of where I feel kind of drawn these days especially because the stakes of understanding these things can be so high because we feel, it feels like we're in a critical moment in history. And if we don't learn how to make better choices, then we really are in trouble. Like we really are in trouble. So that's kind of where my head usually has been lately. And I'm sure I'm not alone. (laughs) Right. And you probably get this question often if there was a piece of advice that you can give for better decision-making and uh, you just had a minute to, to share what that sage advice would be, what, what do you think is most useful for a, a broader audience and for someone who doesn't really give you any context outside of that question? Yeah, you know, there are a lot of ways in which, uh, in which we go astray, but I think the one, the one thing that almost um, is the gatekeeper to seeing things clearly and rationally is overconfidence bias. To me, if I were to give one advice to anyone, it would be that you know to, to just assume because research has has demonstrated time and again that we all, most of us, suffer from overconfidence bias. We think we know more than we actually do more than evidence suggests. And we think we can do more than, and our abilities are better than what evidence actually suggests. And it doesn't mean that, that there's anything you know wrong with us, that's human. It's just human, it's a tendency. Um, it's, it's just a tendency to do that. And the problem is, is that when you think you know more than you do, you aren't open to all the ways in which you might be biased. You're not open to all the ways in which you might be socially influenced. You are confident and comfortable in your answers, in your beliefs, in your values. And that's where being getting stuck comes in. But it also is how people get off track so quickly because they're so over, because that overconfidence prevents them from getting the information, the guidance, um, and also being introspective the way you need to be introspective in order to make the right choices. Um, So the actionable kind of takeaway from that is just assume (laughs) that you really don't know. Like don't don't assume that you know. It takes work every day to practice self-doubt, not in a way that lowers your self-esteem or diminishes your sense of value or worth or anything like that. But there is a, there is an amount of healthy self-doubt 
that can protect you from overconfidence bias that really can be unhealthy. And so having that healthy self-doubt, just loving yourself and valuing yourself and knowing that you're a beautiful, wonderful human being that has this tendency to not always be as, as right as you think you are, I think is this is a really important first step. Well, that's phenomenal the way you described it and really insightful. Thank you. If we were to um, switch gears and think about an opinion that you hold when it comes to decision science, that's uncommon in comparison to your peers. It's, it's a curiosity that I have. What comes to mind? Oh, so many things. Um, I actually, um, one of my favorite pastimes is to go, is just to scroll through Twitter at all the common knowledge and all the, the thought leadership advice that investors or, you know, wellness experts or what have you have and, and just, um, and, and, and just kind of like clarify for myself, like why I think they're wrong. (laughs) And though, and although like, I don't think I'm ever really right. And I think that's probably one of the main differences um, is mostly like in in the approach that I don't have a strong point of view um, on answers. Like I don't have strong opinions on answers. I have a very strong commitment to the process, um, to a very kind of scientific, open-minded, data-driven, objective approach to answering life's problems. Um, I, and, and oftentimes it's hard for people to kind of feel comfortable with, but um, I guess that's the, it's really kind of a, a bigger, kind of a higher level difference in that I, I don't have very quick answers, but um, it's more about the gray for me. Um, but let me think something that can, oh, I don't know. I could open up Twitter right now and find something. Um, an example might be, well, you know, trust your feelings. That's a really big one. Um, gosh, I'm sorry. I can't, I can't think of anything specific to mind. Well, um, you've I actually answered it already. That. Yeah. You've answered it already because uh, there, there is something to be said around why people hold strong beliefs. It kind of assumes the idea that they have a perfect set of information in their mm-hmm. mind in order to support it wholeheartedly, especially when you're tweeting about it, you, you have to be quite succinct, right? So it's mm-hmm. a pretty definitive statement. And being in the gray allows for the natural uh, variation of life and nuance. And, um, and I, think, I think that's what I took from it. So thanks thank for you. that. No, thank you. I think, I think that's, yeah, you're, you, um, you articulated my thoughts quite well there. Thank you. So with that in mind, um, Twitter is is an interesting thing uh, to think about when it comes to how, I guess, broader consumer populations or or people in general are influenced by uh, making their decisions because it's a, it's a, you can argue it's a media source. Uh, What would you say is a good criteria for having um, a, 
a representative amount of information from different sources? Do you have your own personal rigor when you're looking to, to make decisions that might be insightful for others to um, keep in mind? Yes. Um, it, you know, I, I could, I could say as an answer to that question, you know, pull a little from conservative sources, pull a little from liberal sources, pull a little from younger generations, from older generations, diversify your portfolio, right? Just diversification is just a good thing, no matter what, because you are, um, you know, if you, if you, Think about it from the perspective of social network theory, for instance, your ties to other people, um, those ties are like, um, you know, electrical lines or telephone lines or water pipes um, where information can flow to and from you. And if you're not tied to a diverse group of people on the internet or in social media or in the world, then you're not, you're getting a very limited biased perspective on information. Um, but that doesn't mean that everything you hear is right. That doesn't mean that by diversifying your portfolio, you're just getting a bunch of information that's all correct. Um, so th the second kind of bit of advice I would give to make sure that you have balanced perspective of what's going on in the world is to remain, is to kind of remain on top of your emotions. Because sometimes when you hear something that doesn't feel right, the reaction is very automatic, it's visceral, it's emotional. And social media has taught us to just react, just blurt out whatever we feel and want without monitoring ourselves, with our, without um, being measured. And when we do that, we reject information or we reject those ties that could give us information that, that might actually be useful one day. So you know, keeping that stress level down. And when I'm on Twitter and I read something that's really emotionally disturbing, I just set it aside and let it, let that emotion fade before I even really try to, to engage or think about it. Um, so, and so that's also um, really helpful, but there's also a third thing that is really, really important that I don't think enough people do. I don't, I don't really know. I haven't really asked a lot of people this, but my sense is that we like to learn a lot of information but we don't like really spend a lot of time critically understanding how the world works or how people work or how institutions work from a like sociologically or psychologically. So if somebody gives you a bit of information um, and you aren't aware that that kind of phenomenon that you're hearing about through that information is, is not possible given the way the world works, like, um, like conspiracy theories, for example, it's very hard to coordinate a conspiracy. Like it's very hard to have a group of, you know, democratic um, politicians in very high levels of government who are, you know, they're all really answering to their own constituents too, or else they can't get reelected for them to all coordinate and run a child trafficking ring without any Republican <laughs> Senator knowing about it. Like the logistics of how that works is just unrealistic. It's the likelihood is so low. Um, but if you don't really think about those kind of like, you know, collab coordination problems, collaboration problems, sanctioning, sanctioning and monitoring among, you know, social groups like in, um, in, you know, in politics, if you don't know how those things work, you're likely to believe anything. Um, so learning about that stuff is really important. I wish more people would take time learning 
about, you know, the physics or chemistry of society and less time trying to get their facts straight. Well, Nika, it's been a pleasure connecting with you today. And um, if we switch gears for a bit and uh, you had the opportunity to go back to any point in history and meet anyone, who comes to mind? Um, it's like choosing between children. <laughs> How do you choose a favorite person to want to meet? Um, I, I think, you know, I've often wondered in times of crisis, a leader like, I mean, I would like to sit down with Joe Biden actually right now. That would be really, really interesting to me. Um, not, you know, whether or not I am a fan or a critic is not the relevant part here. You know, I want to understand his decision making process. I want to understand in this point in history, grappling with the challenges he's grappling with, with the popularity or lack of popularity he has, the stresses that he has, having followed um, an administration that he's followed, how is he managing his decision-making? I, I think that would be so insightful to have a conversation with him about, about just his approach to decision-making. Um, and I, I think, yeah, that's, that's my answer. And it's probably a short-term answer. I might change my mind tomorrow, but right now um, I'm really fascinated about how he might be doing that. Well, wonderful. It, again, it's been a pleasure. And until we speak again, maybe you can share a parting thought. Um, remember you're human and remember that humans by nature of their brains and their social environments are um, almost set up to make mistakes <laughs> um, without, you know, without fail. So be gentle and with yourself and forgiving with yourself. Um, and yeah, flaws are human. That's, that's the bottom line. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for attending the author's podcast and stay tuned for more episodes.